Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. If you're anything like me, you love to see an elite performance. Whether it's an Olympian like Michael Phelps or sports figures like Michael Jordan or Tom Brady, we're fascinated at people who can perform at the highest level. There's a common thread with these individuals. They all have an elite mindset. I'm honored today to have Dr. Larry Widman on the show. He's an elite mindset coach who works directly with athletes and leaders to develop this kind of mindset. If you want to build the best version of what you're capable of, it starts with your mind. This is a powerful episode that you don't want to miss. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Larry Widman. Larry is a high-performance psychiatrist and an elite mindset coach. He works with CEOs, professional athletes, Olympians, NCAA sports teams, all these to develop the mental skills and mindset to push the boundaries of performance. He's also the co-founder of Performance Mountain, a company dedicated to helping people and organizations reach their peak potential. He hosts the Max Out Mindset podcast, where he interviews people performing at elite levels. And if that's not enough, he's also the author of a new book called Max Out Mindset, proven strategies that prepare you and your team for battle in business, sport, and life. Larry's an expert on the mindset for high performance, and I'm excited to have him on the show. So, Larry, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's great that you're here, and I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book and uh, kind of the mindset, uh, this idea of an of, of elite mindset. And um, I got to start off, and I got to ask you this question. So as I said in the introduction, you're both a high-performance psychiatrist and an elite mindset coach. Help me understand or help us understand what those two roles are. Are they different? Are they the same? What, what do you do in those roles? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, actually, they're quite a bit different. And, you know, I spent a fair amount of my life being a traditional psychiatrist. And and along the way, you know, it became through insurance and other factors, you know, we became sort of pill pushers. And mm-hmm. it just never sat very well with me, meaning we got to d- diagnose and give medications and all the evolution and improvement in life was the therapist and everybody else got to help people with that. So eventually, I started uh, transitioning into a role where I ran the addiction unit of a couple hospitals and where I got to be around a lot of high performers, meaning as long as they were able to manage their addiction, most of them were able to go back and do wonderful things in their life. They were CEOs and doctors and lawyers and teachers and everything in between, a lot of military personnel. And so my role as a high-performance psychiatrist was more as a part traditional psychiatrist, meaning I was still there to diagnose and treat mental illness. And But I I, I did it through the lens of what I'd call almost a wellness model, meaning how do you help people elevate their performance once they've taken care of their issues, so to speak? So, you know, we live in this world where we're in this sick model all the time where we, we take care of people that are sick and try to make them better. And 
I always like the notion of, you know what, you can treat people, even though they're doing fairly well in life and help them elevate performance. Mm. So, but in the high performance psychiatry world, I'm actually using my medical license and I'm, I am helping people through a lens of high performance, deal with their issues and then, you know, maybe take it up a notch, so to speak. So it's very different than what I do as an elite mindset coach. And in that role, which I do much more of now, you know, I always tell people I'm not, I, I don't use my psychiatry lens. I'm not, I'm here. I don't keep a medical chart on you. I'm not here to diagnose and treat mental illness. I may be aware that there are some issues going on and refer you to see somebody in that situation. But here I'm truly helping people with things such as with confidence and composure and focus and things like that. People that are already doing fairly well in whatever their endeavor is, but maybe you're struggling in one area or or saying, hey, how do I even take it up a notch? Like I want to play at the next level or I, mm. I want to be the CEO of that company. And I know that if I don't learn how to uh, call my nervous system a little bit better under pressure, that I'm not going to get there, for example. So that's, you know, an elite mindset coach is all about training the building blocks for an elite mindset and then helping them to get there. Mm. How did you how did you end up in this field? I mean, um, obviously, in the world of psychiatry, there's a lot of different avenues you can go in. And you went into this one area, but then you've sort of switched gears now and gone into this uh, elite mindset. What what attracted you to that uh, going in and, and, and doing that and and working with teams and CEOs? And what what was the attraction there for you? Yeah, well, like I said, the first part was I just had a bad taste about being the person who just prescribed medications. Mm. I was always a believer that you could help people in different ways through thinking through things and giving them perspective and giving them strategies. But it really was just a fluke. In 2007, I'd moved back to Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was working at the hospital. And a very high-performing uh, athlete from the University of Nebraska had a mental health crisis. And I mm. just happened to be the one on call. And uh, the... The head physician there, Dr. Albers, uh, essentially liked the way I helped this person get better and asked me if I would come on board and help out and consult at the University of Nebraska Athletic Department. So it was really kind of a fluke. I actually told him no at the time because I was too busy. But about a year later, I asked if the offer was still there. And my initial role, even in Nebraska, was more as a high-performance psychiatrist. But I saw that there was a need there, that there weren't enough people getting help on performance issues. And mm. how do you elevate performance? How do you develop a better mindset? Because at that level, at the division one level, and really I've learned at all levels, that's the big separator. They're all training physically and they got nutrition and strength and conditioning and all the things that help an athlete perform at their best. But back in 2007, and even now to some degree, not everybody works on their mind. And mm -hmm. we know that at the highest levels, that's the great separator because everybody's talented. So it really was a fluke. But then I just learned to have a love for working with high performers because I loved helping taking people from where they're at on the edges of elite to elite. Not to say there's anything wrong with helping people at the bottom. I did that for a long time where maybe the goal was to get somebody from being homeless to living in a group home. And there's a reward in that as well. Um, but for me, there's a, a real thrill and a passion for helping people that I already consider to be a very high level performer. They're either have barriers that are keeping you from getting there, or they just want more resilience to take them up even another notch to become the best at what they do. Oh, I love that. That's great. And and so you co-founded Performance Mountain, and that's uh, and that's the organization that you do uh, this coaching through. Is that right? 
Yeah, uh, uh, certainly. So what happens with Performance Mountain, it was really born out of a three-year collaboration that Jack Riggins, who is my partner, and he's a Navy SEAL commander. I think he's been on your show. He's been on and, our show, uh, yes. Yeah, Yeah. and so he um, he was still stationed in Germany at the time that I met him. And um, Coach John Cook from the University of Nebraska Volleyball Program had heard him speak to, I think, the football team or a business in Lincoln. And and I'd been working with a volleyball team for a bit at that point. And, and he asked me about Jack, if I knew him. And I said, you know, maybe it'd be great if Jack came and spoke with the team, too. And I had an ulterior motive after I got to know Jack. But essentially, we spent about three years together helping Nebraska volleyball and especially John Cook elevate his performance. And it culminated in that team winning the 2015 national championship. Wow. Around that same time with politics and some things, they were no longer allowing um, part-time help to work at the university. They only wanted full-time people. So we were essentially out at that point. But we decided to use what we had learned in our three years together, uh, helping Coach John Cook and our team within a team and all the things that we had done to um, to do it again for athletic teams and businesses who wanted it outside of the university setting. And so that's essentially how we started the company. And really, the goal of that company was to help people kind of develop elite mindsets and winning culture. And because we'd all worked our entire lives to be elite, we felt like we could give back. You know, by teaching what we've learned through our lens, you know, with the goal of empowering teams and um, to maximize potential and minimize friction points, all those kind of things to get people to what we call communicate at the speed of trust and what we say optimize performance when it matters. I always say if you can't do it when it matters, what's the point? Hmm. And um, and then since that time, we've added Danny uh, Woodhead, who is a former NFL 10 uh, year career there. He has a really neat story, his own life experiences. But he also caught a touchdown pass at the Super Bowl from Tom Brady, <laughs> as an undrafted free agent. And then Lauren Cook is another member of our team, All-American volleyball player and played professionally as well. And then we have coach Tom Osborne who won three national titles in Nebraska, was a congressman and athletic director. And and uh, he kind of just helps support us and uh, will help us uh, in, in, in some of our outlets as well. And just a neat, neat man. So, um, you know, that's kind of our, t- our our team. We work with teams and we work with businesses. Um, last year, I would tell you the one team that we worked with in collaboration, Danny, Jack, and I was the Creighton men's basketball team for the first time. Mm-hmm. They were picked to finish seventh in the Big East Conference. I will tell you they finished seventh, but they finished seventh in the country and won the Big East Conference Championship That's before great. COVID canceled the season. So um, we we really love working with high-performing athletic teams that already have a great culture and help them sort of hone in and elevate their performance and uh, and and sometimes using the different lenses of what it's taken to be great over the years is I, I think is just an advantage for some teams and, and businesses to learn from one of us more than the other sometimes or Certain people like to hear what Jack has to say as a Navy SEAL or Danny's a football player who's made a living as a professional. And sometimes they want to hear the short, bald scientist every once in a while as well. So. <laughs> well, that's kind of an interesting group just to be around. I mean, just the discussions you might have, like you said, the diversity between, you know, a Navy SEAL, professional athletes, uh, you know, very high performing uh, college athletes than, you know, professional volleyball players. And Tom, I mean, I, that's got to be just an interesting mix of just great minds and great experiences uh, in one room. That's got to be pretty exciting. Yeah, I think that's what's fun is that we do have different lenses. But I will tell you the reason why Jack and I hit it off so much is that we almost have complete alignment, how you help people and teams optimize their performance. And the same mental skills they were uh, teaching in the Navy SEALs, 
when I brought them to Jack and said, are they teaching these? He says, well, I kind of use different terms, but they were the exact same ones. So we were in complete alignment about the importance of love and what role that plays in building elite teams, because so many coaches think that you just need to train, 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 and you just want killers. And and I think coaches expected Jack to give them that message. And when they heard that Jack was giving the same message, that it's all about relationships, and it's all about connection and love, and that's why we're willing to fight for the guy on our right and fight for a guy on our left, that's why we have such elite teams. And so that synergy between his lens and mine has really made a difference for a certain teams. That's really interesting. I know, I know you've read my book and I do talk about love and, and, and relationships in, in, in the world of leadership. And if you don't have that relationship, if you don't have those, if you don't have a love for people, if you don't have a love for the people that you're shoulder to shoulder with every day, then if you're just doing it for the title or the money or the bonus checks or what have you, everybody knows it and your performance is never going to be at the level of that it could be. So that's really interesting that uh, what I've learned in leadership is very consistent with, um, you know, performing at a high level in a team. That's, that's re- really interesting. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, because I loved your book. So, I mean, that's sort of inspired me to write my book, actually, or I should say finish my book. Well, I'm excited. Uh, I just, you know, just recently it's it's now out or it's 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 in pre-order right now. And um, so let's talk about your book. So it's called Max Out Mindset. So what is the book about? You know, give us a kind of an overview of what what you're doing in this book and what you, who is who, who's the audience for this book? Yeah, so I really over the past 20 years, kind of like I said, I've really been blessed to work with some of the best teams and coaches and athletes and other high performers, really in all sectors, business, sport, life. And so in writing the book, I tried to organize my thoughts and my philosophies and beliefs based on those years of experience and also through Performance Mountain. And so in the book, I try to outline the steps necessary to become elite. And I do that through recounting of stories uh, from coaches and athletes and teams that I worked with to share their insights on how to max out when it matters the most. And I use what I call the 15 powers outlined within to learn how to prepare for battle and then max out your mind, max out your emotions, and then max out your team. And I just really felt by writing this book that whether you're a coach or an athlete or a business leader or really just trying to improve your own mindset for life, that the stories that, you know, highlight the struggles and accomplishments, the highs and the lows and everything in between that accompanies what I call pursuing the edges of elite will help you max out as well. So my goal was to really have people use the book in its entirety or even individual chapters, each representing a different power to help you know, with the lessons necessary to be in the best position to max out when I say what it matters the most, because my book's called Max Out Mindset, when it matters the most, and then, and then, uh, you know, uh, the rest of it that you described. Okay, so when it matters the most, I like that. You know, it's interesting, um, more and more, you know, with this COVID, you know, crisis that we're in right now, it's, it's really interesting, because mental health was not something that was high on anyone's discussion list, right, in in the business world. We're all gung-ho, you know, get orders, uh, meet with customers. You know, it was a lot of just, you know, run our businesses, run them, get better, get better. But with the change that happened in the world, you know, with, with COVID and all the changes, you're starting to see a lot more people thinking and talking about the mental side of business more, which is really interesting because it's not something I've been leading for 30 years since the first time I've ever hear, heard anyone spending any any time talking about the mental health side of it. And um, so you're dealing with sort of the, the, you know, getting to that elite level, right? So taking your mindset to that where you can achieve really the top of your game. But um, 
you know, I'm like I said, even in my world, you know, the I would say non elite world, we're seeing mindset is a is a big issue. Uh, mental state is a big issue. Um, you know, especially as leaders, you're we're facing the unknown right now, and so we have to sort of uh, how do I how do I gird myself for this this unknown that I'm about to face today? You know, coming into the work where I might have a sick employee or that might have COVID. How do I deal with that? You know, can I open my business? Can, so there's so many issues we're facing. So it's really interesting that the mental side of it is becoming more, it is trickled down to the, to, to just every company and every, everyone that owns a business is dealing with this right now. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of thoughts on that. So one, um, I always tell people if they want to have an elite mindset, they have to take, I always put my mental health hat on and say, you have to take care of your mental health. And, mm. you know, um, one out of four high performing women, one out of five men are going to suffer depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction issues. And sometimes high performers are even more prone to those kind of things because of perfectionism. But mm. um, I'm glad you brought that up because everybody's got the potential for an elite mindset or what I call the best version of the mindset. Of course, mm. not everyone is Bill Gates and not everyone is Michael Jordan, but that doesn't mean that you can't develop an elite mindset of your own. Meaning what I call it is just the best version of what you're capable of. So I always remind people, especially as you pointed out today, you've got to take care of your mental health. And what's really crazy, John, is that um, as I've been working with so many teams right now with kids between 16 and 24 years old, the number of them that are reporting psychological distress right now between their own natural wiring and life and then add COVID in board, you know, initially I thought maybe they were embellishing a bit, but, you know, upwards of one out of three or one out of four were actually telling us in our group setting that they'd had suicidal thoughts in the past mm -hmm. several months. And then the CDC just came out with a report a few weeks ago that said that one out of four people between the eight ages of 18 and 24 had contemplated suicide in the past month due to the pandemic. And so mm -hmm. what you're seeing and what I'm seeing are in complete alignment that there is so much distress going on right now. And I think I know why at that level even more, but at the kids level um, that we miss, uh, maybe we mishandled as parents or adults, but um, because initially, and I can tell you from my own world and experiences that as they were losing things like prom and sports and graduation, mm. we always tried to give them perspective and say, you know, it could be so much worse. You know, you could be homeless or somebody in your family could have died. But I think what the kids were starting to hear, even though it wasn't intentional from a lot of us, is that we were discounting what they were feeling, meaning anytime mm. they told us about a loss, we're like, yeah. yeah, but it could be so much worse. But then, yeah. you know, you lose your sports and you lose uh, you lose seeing your friends and you're isolated and you're being taught remotely. Maybe you lose a summer trip and, and, and maybe you lose your job because, um, you work in an area where, you know, things are shut down like a waiter or a waitress that a lot of kids do or what have you. And they get punched and punched and punched and we're telling them, Hey, it could be worse. And I yeah, think there's so yeah. much distress there. And as we're opening that can of worms, I think we found a new way to start reaching out and helping these kids, but there's a lot of distress in kids and adults right now. More than yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah, same. I was going to say same here. And I, and I'm not. I'm not. I don't get in the world of mental health at all. I mean, I'm I'm a business guy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a nuclear engineer. I'm probably the worst guy to talk about mm -hmm. mental health, right? <laughs> but but um, but I see it. I'm, I mean, I see it. I see it in in my employees. I see it in 
other CEOs I talk to, other business leaders, everyone's kind of facing a high level of anxiety right now. So it's really interesting. So it is a mindset. And I like what you talked about as far as at least, you know, I talk about it too, as far as being a leader, you have to take care of yourself, you know, mentally, mentally, spiritually, physically, if you want to just kind of stay strong, because, you know, at least in terms of leader, everybody's depending on you, you know, and you got the world on your shoulders, you better take care of yourself. Because if you don't, you're going to have you're going to fall apart pretty easily. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so, um, so you said you're sharing some of the stories are in the book that uh, are these are these some of the people that you work with and some of the, some of the uh, teams you work with in, in the book. Do you tell some of those stories? Yeah, I've been lucky because I have about a hundred different athletes and teams that have either given me permission to tell me their stories or they're already public information. They shared them in the paper or on podcasts or what have you. So I would never share a mental health story um, or something, really any story if it wasn't, if I wasn't given the okay to do that. But most of it's public and most of everything I wrote, I got permission in advance for. But I do teach through the lens of sport because um, I do think there's a lot of lessons you can learn there. And it's, it's, the way I decided to teach it. And so I, you know, I work with, you know, three or four teams over a long period of time in Nebraska, Nebraska volleyball, Nebraska bowling, and, and uh, Nebraska women's gymnastics. And I also work with Creighton volleyball. And those four teams I had seven or eight years of experience with. Um, and then, you know, I, I put in a lot of different stories from Nebraska football and I, Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr and lots of national people as well. But, you know, the personal stories are the ones that I thought would be the ones that would help resonate and teach a lesson um, from the different powers I'm teaching about. All right. How do you overcome this? Or what can I learn from this through the lens of sport, per se, um, that will help me in life? Because they overlap completely. And and I always tell people my biggest why is to help really young people become empowered young men and women so that by the time they're in their early 20s, you know, they have great self-esteem. They know how they want to be treated by others, particularly men or women, um, that they know that they can take on the world and do anything they set their mind to do. And and that's a hard shift to get to from 16 to 22. And so a big part of my why is helping empower them. And so, of course, we're always teaching through that lens, like anything you can learn in sport, handling adversity, accepting your role, um, dealing with tough conversations. How do you resolve conflict? All those things that make teams and athletes great give them a huge advantage as you move forward in life. And compared to their peers that have a traditional college experience, they are sought after by the business world and the professional world because they have had to deal with, you know, managing time and Mm. dealing with 20 or 30 hours of sport and dealing with failure. You know, I mean, Mm. a lot of kids today, they don't ever deal with failure or learn how to develop grit. But when you're on the big stage or even any stage in sport, you know, you're, you're out there to fail all the time in front of people. And you have to learn how to move on to the next play, to the next point, to the next game, and how to help pick up your teammates when they're struggling. Mm. It's just a huge advantage later on in life. And that's why so many student athletes go on to become great leaders and do wonderful things professionally. I agree with you. I, I, I say the number one thing I look for when I'm hiring is grit. I look for people that are resilient, that can overcome obstacles, because especially as an entrepreneur and, and a business leader, we're going to come up against, you know, my competitors are 40 billion, $150 billion companies, right? And we're going up against these guys. They're going to pull out all the stops and we have to be able to be 
you know, we have to, we have to find ways to, to work around all the obstacles they're going to put up against us. And so I want employees that have a history of overcoming difficulties, uh, that have failed. Um, I like to hire veterans, military veterans, because they've had that experience, you know, and like you said, uh, um, you know, athletes, uh, student athletes have, have gone through those failures. They have lost. I mean, uh, Danny Woodhead didn't win a Super Bowl, you know, and, uh, but, you know, he played at an elite level, but he never got to, he never got that ring, you know, and, uh, and uh, that's just a great, he's there. He can tell that story to other people who are, you know, facing failure and facing, you know, challenges. Yeah. Well, the really neat thing about Danny, not that I'll bore you too long, was that Danny went, nobody, nobody recruited him in college. He went to a division two school where he won that version of the hyphen. He went to Shadron state, Nebraska didn't want him. They wouldn't even let him walk on. Like, mm. Then he's an undrafted free agent. Nobody drafts him in the pros. He's five foot eight. I mean, he doesn't look much bigger than I. He is bigger than I. And he's, but I mean, here's a guy that nobody really essentially wanted mm-hmm. along the way. No division one, no NFL draft. He gets cut by his first NFL team and he somehow makes it 10 years and becomes a major contributor in the NFL as a guy that really um, everybody overlooked. And so even, even not getting, whether he got to the Super Bowl or not, it was constantly having to show, how do I bounce back? How do I, how do I I stay present? How do I maximize my physical body and my mind to um, put myself in the best position to win a role? And so he, he's got really a cool story to share with businesses because look, the NFL is a business. Yeah, and yeah. he's able to say, "Look, I worked. I was on a. I was playing for the Patriots for a few years. Arguably the best business in the NFL history. And let me tell you how they did it. How would? They, how did they become the best business? Mm. So there's lots of lessons learned from what the Patriots did better than other organizations he was in." Um, as to why they were more successful on average, because the Patriots didn't have better football players on average than most of the other teams, but they had something, you know, that was grit, culture, all those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I was, uh, I'm I'm a lifelong Patriots fan. So when Mm -hmm. Woodhead was on the team, he was a, he was a crowd favorite. We loved him. I mean, he just, he, for, I think it's because we recognize all that he had overcome to get to where he was. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I remember during the days he played and people were wearing the hats, you know, the Woodhead Mm -hmm. hats and, and, uh, you know, people were, you know, people loved him. So, uh, I enjoyed it. And he's a neat guy. He's He's a, a, he's a really neat guy. Yeah. Yeah. Now I got to get him on the show sometime. (laughs) That'd be fun. Um, so, uh, just real quickly, you mentioned there's 15 powers in the book. What are, what are some examples of some of those powers that you mentioned? Yeah, so sure. So first I kind of organized the book in a way I preparing for battle and then max out your mind, max out your emotions and max out your team. I felt like we needed to go in that order. So for example, in the preparing for battle section, uh, I have the power of the space and that is this notion that you have a stimulus and a response. So something happens to you and you have this brief space as a human being to decide how to respond. I think anyone can relate to people that have road rage or getting cut off Mm. in traffic or a bad call that happens at a sporting event. Mm. You have this stimulus or an event happen and we have this brief period as a human being to decide how we're going to respond. Are we going to lose our mind? We say it's not that big a deal. And I really, that's the foundation of what we believe that if you can learn to expand that space just a little bit to have a little bit better time to say, all right, I'm not going to respond in a way that's going to hurt that person's feelings, but maybe ruin the relationship or because we all have different triggers. And so if we're just being honest, every one of us have triggers where we're more prone to lose our mind or have regrets that we said something or did something Mm. that we wish we wouldn't have done. 
right? And so, and a lot of times when we look back and see that we've had a regret about a relationship that went bad, or maybe the way we had a conversation with our teenager, it's usually because we didn't manage that space very well. And Mm. I'm a big believer, you can train that space through the core mental skills that I teach, and through mindfulness strategies. And by doing that, you know, maybe you just take a, take a deep breath and go, you know what, it's just not that big a deal that I hit Mm. another red light. Or you know what, I'm just not going to lose my mind. It's a teenager. They made a mistake and I'm not going to say things to ruin the relationship, but I'm going to hold them accountable. So, and then, you know, I'm a big positive psychology guy, catching people doing something right and Mm. reinforcing that behavior. That's a great leadership uh, technique too. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to get coaches and team leaders to do that doesn't mean Mm. you don't hold people accountable. Of course, occasionally you criticize and hold people accountable, but you do it in the right way. And then I, you know, and then I teach the four legs of elite performance, the physical, mental, technical, and tactical areas that you have to be great that's the preparing for battle and maxing out your mind it's about teaching um, the high performance mental skills the power of mindfulness the power of mindset the power of grit we just talked about and then in max out of emotions i talk about the power of happiness and appreciation and gratitude and then one that i love a lot is the power of vulnerability i spend a ton of time with coaches and athletes helping them learn how to be vulnerable because the only way you can get to ultimate trust with a team is if you're willing to share things about yourself to get to deeper relationships with your team and it requires some level of vulnerability right to be seen and not to worry that people aren't going to like you when you share Mm something about yourself and then i feel like once you've taken care of that if then if you're on a team you can max out your team and i mine are the power of positive teams the power of positive coaches the power of positive leadership the power of evolution uh the power of positive leadership i teach through the lens of coach kirsten bernthal booth at creighton who's singly singly the most well-balanced coach i've ever been around she Mm. is the women's volleyball coach and just a neat human being and a great story i mean her she took over a team that was three and 23 and and has taken them to the ncaa tournament eight years in a row and then my power of evolution chapter is on coach john cook and my nine years of working with him and though watching him evolve even though when i met him his record was 320 wins and 26 losses think about that he won over 90 percent of his games but he was in the middle of a form of a uh, of a mind body stress reaction or a nervous breakdown and he wasn't starting to get the best out of his teams despite all of that and the evolution of him and i'll tell you this his quote he said i wish i learned how to coach out of love instead of anger earlier in my career mm. when he said that at any uh, a talk about a year and a half ago i knew like wow Jack and I and me had done a great job with him because he was a guy that did often coach out of anger first, despite how successful he was. But he learned how to coach out of love and still train at a high level. And oh my gosh, he started winning more national titles than ever. And then my last, my last chapter is called the power of ultimate trust. And that's where we try to get every team, which is a next level of trust between coaches and assistant coaches and coaches and team and team and team and team and support staff. And that requires building deeper relationships, getting to know each other at a way you never have before. And it requires you to share experiences that maybe you wouldn't normally share with people. But um, in the end, it's never about the technical parts or what you're good at skill wise. It's about what Jack had said earlier that 
It's brotherhood and love and connection that gets you to fight for the person on your right or left, literally to life and death as a Navy SEAL or as a a naval uh, person like yourself. Here, it's about winning and losing. At times, it's a different level. But how do you get there when maybe you didn't get the role you wanted or maybe Mm. you're injured this year or, um, you know, maybe you're in a slump? Can you still fight for that person? on all sides to help get the best out of your team. So at the end of the day, that's kind of how I organize my book. Each power is a different ingredient that I think will help either, you know, max yourself out or then eventually max your team out. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Deep Leadership is brought to you by Peak Demand. Peak Demand is a veteran-led manufacturer of products for electric utilities. They help utilities keep the lights on. Building and maintaining the nation's electrical grid is hard work, but getting the critical components to keep it running shouldn't be. Peak Demand's products ship in just 24 hours, where most other suppliers can take up to eight weeks. Go to peakdemand.com and learn more about the Peak Demand difference and request a free sample. Deep Leadership is also brought to you by my Amazon best-selling book, I Have the Watch, Becoming a Leader Worth Following. This book is filled with 23 short stories on how you can become a more effective leader. Learn how to unleash the power of people with this easy, practical guide. Go to IHaveTheWatch.com and click the large orange button for signed copies. Enter the discount code DEEPLEADERSHIP, one word, at checkout to get 20% off your order. And domestic shipping is always free. One of my questions was, was to you is uh, like, how can, what, what do you think business leaders will gain from reading this book? And I think you're probably answered, you answered that question just by your, how you described the book, because all the things that you talk about, um, they, I think they relate deeply into the leadership role and running an organization, running a business and running a, a nonprofit. It's all about, it's the people, it's the relationships, it's the trust um, it's the communication. It's the vulnerability. It, what I call or being authentic as a leader and not, uh, you know, being a fake robot, you know, like everything is great, you know, just do these things. But also, you know, we touched on love and just love and respect uh, for the people that work for you. And, you know, in, in my mind, I always say that there's no one person more important than another. We all, we all contribute to, uh, the role of the success of the organization. It's the same thing with a sports team, right? Even if you're injured that year, you can still play a role helping develop the younger players and, and teaching and training and mentoring. And so there's always a role for even the people that might be injured. Yeah, some of my favorite stories in the book are about people who either didn't have an, a, a big role on the court that year or didn't have one at all and then was asked to step in because of an injury or for whatever reason and delivered under pressure. Mm. Cause there's just nothing better um, and nothing harder to do than for prepare every day uh, for your sport, you know, 20 hours a week when mentally you don't think there's a high likelihood you're going to play today or you're going to play very much, but can you keep your head in the game and make yeah. be the best on the scout side of this team and make, make the team better. In the meantime, you're paying attention. And when your number is called, you deliver. And I have, a, you know, dozens of, well, not, I have several stories in there that are just my favorite about young ladies and men stepping up under pressure when it mattered. And, and they, they hadn't played much and then they delivered mm-hmm. for their team. And that's really cool. And then, you know, as you mentioned with the businesses in my power of positive teams chapter, I, I spent a fair amount of time talking about what Google 
learned and what MIT learned about what creates the best teams. And both of them had the hypothesis that if you put the best and the brightest together, it would produce the best teams. And they were patently false in both of those. That yes. Of course, it helps to have talent. In the, mm-hmm. But the best and the brightest, if there aren't certain ingredients like psychological safety, yeah. right? And um, you know, everybody playing a role. If you don't, if there aren't certain ingredients, those teams don't tend to max out, even if yeah. it appears that they have all the talents. And so those, um, I, so I use a lot of business examples of what they've learned. And as simple as watching Apple evolve from a company that was bankrupt to obviously one of the best in the world and Kodak, who had a monopoly, who's yeah. bankrupt because they didn't evolve, mm. you know, for example. And so, um, there are a lot of lessons learned through the lens of sport that I think they can relate to. But then there's also lessons learned from what some of the, the great institutions of this world who have studied the great business teams and the great teams in general. What have they done different in the business world or in the business of life? Mm. Oh, I think it's great. I think they, they apply. I mean, I know uh, I've had a lot of discussions with coaches and the, you know, the, the, the coach and the leader play a very similar role, you know, and one of the, one of the things, one of the differences is that the coaches know they don't step on the field. They have to prepare their people, but they have to step off the field and they have to let their people play. And that's one of the problems sometimes with leaders is they don't necessarily step off the field. They want to, especially entrepreneurs, uh, sometimes they, they hold too tightly to the reins of the business. They don't really let go of, uh, and let really people be, Excellent, you know, and uh, so I think, but part of that, but there's a very similar analogy between coaches and leaders. We play a very similar role to motivate the team, communicate the goals, you know, um, you know, build the team, pick the right people for the team, make sure everybody has is very clear on their roles and what they're going to do. It's very, very similar. Yeah, and the best coaches, interestingly, have learned to micromanage less. Again, yeah. Coach John Cook, Urban Meyer talks specifically about how he learned to finally quit micromanaging and Pete Carroll from the Seattle Seahawks has done a great job of empowering his coaches, but that's true for tons of coaches and and that's at the high school and college level. But again, that notion to micromanage when you're a leader and you want to have control uh, to be able to give up that space a bit over time as you gain experience and recognize that you have assistant coaches and you have managers and you have senior leadership below you and you've got to let them do their job. Yeah. And that's the number one ingredient, by the way, circling back to the Patriots. When you look at their core values they set, yeah. number one is do your job. And that's one do of the things job. that Danny Woodhead said they did so much better than other um you know, other organizations, like they live their values that if beyond time was a value, and then you're 10 minutes late at one organization and there's no consequence. And that'll get into our ingredients and leaders. There's a problem there. Yeah. He says, you were one minute late at the Patriots and you, you know, it was, you know, it was a significant fine. So mm-hmm. that if you had a value that was important to your group, whatever it was, if you didn't do it, you weren't there anymore. Like you had to live those values. And some organizations have these values that they consider core tenets. But then if you don't follow them very well, um, and if you maybe deliver quite a bit performance wise in the short term, they overlook it. But that causes all kinds of breakdown in trust Absolutely. In, in the long term. And eventually it leads to a, a non-trusting organization. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, when, when, when you're not living to the values or, or one of your employees isn't living up to those values and nothing is done about it, it, it destroys the entire organization because they're saying, wait a second, I thought this was where, this is where we stood. And this person can get away with it because 
X, right, or whatever the reason, it, the entire organization starts saying, well, wait a second, well, maybe these aren't important values, you know? And so I think you're right. I think mm-hmm. from what I understand about the Patriots, it doesn't matter who you are, even Tom Brady, if you're late, you're going to get in trouble, right? <laughs> so, yep, absolutely. Yeah, so I love that. So um, so let me let me circle back. I, there's one question I ask all my guests and just kind of be interesting to hear your perspective. So what would you say some of the characteristics of, of a great leader is or a great coach? Yeah, well, I actually, and again, everyone has their own, and I'm sure mine overlap with a lot of people, but I actually have eight ingredients of, okay. of leaders that I've come to out, come up with, and I and I outline them in those chapters. But and I, the first one is, what's your contribution to the problem? And the second one is modeling behaviors. Uh, the third one is consistency. The fourth mm-hmm. one is what I call alignment of time and effort with what you value. My fifth one is called open door policy. My sixth one is called healthy mixture of love and accountability. My seventh is willingness to adapt and evolve. And my eighth is building trust. And I'm happy to go into more detail on any of those if you're interested. But those are the ones that I really sort of, when I'm talking to coaches who I consider a leader, like you said, or, you know, the head of a company, that uh, here are the things that I say, this is what I've learned from, this is what the best do better than others. And um, and try to figure out which ones they're already doing well, which ones maybe they could do some improvement in. And I really challenge team leaders and captains to look at these as well. Because if you think about it, they may be a follower as it relates to the coach, coach. but they're a leader of their team and the best teams I've been around, you know, the leaders take control of that locker room. Mm. They take control of the things that are necessary for a team to stay accountable and committed. And if the coaches have to do all of that, it doesn't mean it doesn't get done, but not at the same level. So I'm really, and it's hard today for um, athletes in that age range that we're talking about anywhere from 16 to 23 to hold people accountable the same way maybe that was done a generation ago because of the way we're raised and we're so much worried about what people think of us and we're not going to be liked. And, and it's just a very challenging thing for leaders to take control of that locker room, so to speak, and, and make sure that they manage things rather than the coaches have to doing everything. Mm. No, I like that a lot. Talk to me about your second thing was modeling. Say that one more time. You said modeling. Modeling behaviors. Modeling behavior. So what do you, what do you mean yeah. by that? <clears throat> so what I mean by that is, well, John Wooden used to say young people need models, not critics. He was a famous UCLA coach. And I say really everybody does. But my example would be is that whatever you want out of your team, you better show them how to do it. So if you want your team, I'll give you one example that I that ties into what's your contribution to the problem. But Coach John Cook, again, at Nebraska, very successful, one of the top coaches of all time in the volleyball world, four national titles, 90% of his games. And prior to the 15 season, they hadn't made the final four in seven years, which was crazy for a team like them that was making it every year. He said, one of the things we struggle with is playing with fear at the end of a game. He says, I want to, why are we doing that? And I said to him, why do you think they're doing that? And he listed off eight or 10 reasons why the team played with fear. And some of them were valid and almost not relevant in, in, in the sense of where I'm going. And I said to him, okay, we'll work on those. But coach, what's your contribution to the, to the team playing with fear? And he couldn't come up with an answer the first day. He really, he was like, I, I don't think I'm contributing. I said, okay. So um, if you want your team to play with 
fearless, you have to model fearlessness. So let's, mm. let's ask the irony. Let's ask the team some questions. All right. Now I'll give you just a couple examples. So this will help illustrate it. So coach who would sits, sits a lot of the game. When you start to pace the sidelines, mm. what do you think your team thinks? And he says, I think they think I love it, that they love it, that they think I'm engaged. And I'd bring one of the ladies in and say, tell coach, what do you think when he starts pacing coach? We think you don't trust us and you make us really anxious. I said, all right, coach, why does the team look over at you or a particular team member look over at you after they make a mistake on the court? Mm. He says, well, that's easy. He says, they're looking for a correction and I give it to them. What do they do wrong? I said, all right, Kelly, come tell coach why you guys look over. Coach, we look over at you because you tend to pull us after we make a single mistake and we're looking to see if the whistle's going to blow it. Are you pulling us out in front of 8,000 people and embarrassing us and making us sit down? Mm. And we're worried already that if we make a second mistake, that you're definitely going to pull us. I said, okay. And, and so forth. And I said, okay, coach, sometimes when it's 23 to 20 and you're winning and now it's 23 all late in the game and you call a timeout, the other team scored three in a row and you kind of slam your clipboard, you're putting your hands through your hair. What do you think the team thinks? He mm. says, they think they love it, that they know I'm fired up and I got their back and I'm going to tell them how we're going to turn this around. And they say, coach, when you're like that, it just makes us lose our minds. Like we're not called anymore when you're not calm. Mm. And a famous Navy SEAL, although now I'm blanking on his name, had a had a very short video where he calls it calm was contagious. He said the number one thing he learned as a SEAL was that whatever you do is contagious. Calm is contagious. Anger is contagious. And so circling back around, I said to coach, can you see how those things could make your team play with fear at the end of the game? <clears throat> you want your team to be present and locked in right here, right now. And when they make a mistake, they're already worried about the future. Are you pulling them? Or they're already thinking, if I make another mistake, he's definitely pulling me from the game and they're no longer communicating with their team. And so I asked him just to do a couple things. I said, could you agree to not stand up during a game unless you need to talk to your setter? Because your team already tells you they're more anxious. And can you agree to not pull anybody on the team unless they completely discombobulate, which on occasion, you know, somebody's made some, or they break team chemistry, you know, like they've completely caused a rift on the court, maybe saying something very inappropriate to a teammate. Can you let your setter, Kelly Hunter at the time, work through this and let you know? Otherwise, let them work through their mistakes and they'll quit looking over at you and they're going to stay focused and present. And he quit doing those things. And that's not the reason that they want it all. But he started modeling the behaviors of fearlessness for them in, in, in the timeouts, after a mistake, when he got stressed himself, he tended to sit down. And, and so everyone thought something was wrong with him. They're like, why isn't he up pacing anymore? Like people were asking me, what's yeah, wrong? Yeah. Or is he not interested anymore? And I said, no, no, that's just his, that's just what he's trying to do. And so the team learned how to play fearless. When it mattered the most, it did not mean they were going to win the national title. It turns out they did win it that year, which is really cool when you can be rewarded because I always say life in sport isn't always fair. You can do everything right, have a perfect nutrition mm-hmm. plan and get all your sleep and train harder than ever. But it doesn't mean you're going to always get your goal to happen. I right. wish it was that simple in sport and life. But when it all comes together, it's really cool, right? And so I, I believe whatever you want, if you want your team to communicate positively, then you can't have them see you yell at your assistant coaches when you're frustrated and then expect them to for an example and so whatever you want out of your team model it for them and i think it's a key ingredient of of leaders and coaches i love that story i think that's so great i um i was uh, listening to a podcast of a 
of a captain, a Navy captain on a submarine. And he was said, he said this, and I really appreciate it. He said, he said, leadership is theater. He said, um, your, 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 re- how you react to things sets the mood for the entire team. And he, he recognized every time when he was the captain of the submarine, every room he walked into, every place he went, everything he looked at, was was everybody was looking in his direction everybody was like oh what's the captain going to say what's the captain going to do he realized that he could he could that a it's it's theater like he's on stage all the time and especially on a submarine you don't ever leave right so you're on stage all the time and that what he said and did and acted it all mattered it all was part of that and so he, he you can use that to to your advantage to help lead your team better but also it can be to your detriment as they see your behaviors change like at the end of a game like that so it's incredible that's a great story i love that yeah if you think about it too right if a leader with all their experience in that position can't model that behavior how could you ever expect those that you lead to do that and yeah. then the last part of that is is that even leaders that are really good at that i always tell people that under stress sometimes we revert back to old behaviors especially if we don't talk about it so yeah. the very yeah. last piece of that story that i just want to share with you about uh, that national title game was that uh, before that game i said to the setter who had a great relationship but who had built ultimate trust with a coach think about it coach and athlete is not an equal relationship i said to her under stress sometimes the best leaders revert back to old behaviors. And this is a big game. They haven't been in a title game in years. And and I said, if coach starts to stand and pace, do you have the courage to tell him to sit down and you got this? She said, I can do it. And I said to coach, I said, same thing. Sometimes we revert. I said, are you okay if you start to pace if Kelly comes over and says, you coach, we got this. He says, yes, no problem. I'd like her to do that. And sure enough, early in that game, there was a terrible call and it was a bad call. I'll give him that. He did start to get up and pace and he didn't sit for a minute. And she walked over to him. And for a long time, I thought she said, uh, you know, sit down, coach, we've got this. Well, he was on a podcast last year uh, with Terry Pettit, who was the mentor to him back in the day. And she said that Kelly walked over and said, sit sit your ass down coach we've got this <laughs> which is really cool when yeah. you think about the trust that was built up it wasn't disrespectful it was almost humorous he never got up again and he even mm. said at the end i don't feel like i coached but she was able to be able because that's the next piece is that if you don't build trust with yeah. those that you lead and vice versa that when if you revert all you get is a bunch of yes people still yep. telling you you're doing a great job if you have the wrong circle around you and so if you have a person that's definitely an unequal relationship be able to have the courage because you've built that trust to say hey coach we got this mm-hmm. sit down think about the power of that right i'm not saying they would have lost if he kept pacing but we do know if he kept pacing that they tend to feel like he's lost trust in them and they're more nervous so maybe they do start to play with fear Right. So we will never know that. But anyway, that's the last part of that, because I think that's the key ingredient for the leader. And my last ingredient is the most important in a way, which is if you do all the other seven well, you're going to build trust with those you lead. And if you can build trust with those you lead, your team can build trust. Because if you can't build a trust with your team, how do you expect your team, who tends to be much younger than you and much less experienced, how do you get them to build ultimate trust with each other? So anyway, that's my my long-winded version of of that story. No, I love it. That's great. Um, I'm, so I'm, I'm excited to get into this book. So, so how can, um, how can listeners connect with you, find out more about your company, um, your mm-hmm. book, your podcast? How do they, how do they reach out to you? 
Well, sure. So our company is called Performance Mountain. So on we're on all the different social media platforms that they don't let me manage any of it. <laughs> <laughs> so Performance Mountain is all one word. So performancemountain.com. And on there has everything. There's a Max Out Mindset page, which is what I, which is the, the portion of Performance Mountain where lots of teams um, are worked with. I have about 20 teams I work with at all different levels. And um, and that's where you can find my book. You can actually buy my book right now on the Performance Mountain site. Um, it pops right up or you click on Max Out Mindset and you can buy it right now and it'll be shipped okay. to you. Um, and then I had to learn what it was. But like for me, on I do I am on Twitter and social media myself and I'm called Doc, capital D-O-C, and it's an underscore elite. So doc, I didn't know what that little thing was called. <laughs> I had to ask today. So it's capital D O C doc, like short for doctor underscore elite. And I'm mostly on Twitter. I do a little bit on Facebook and I, th- I have an Instagram account that they put a few things on, but really that's where I do most of my work is on Twitter. So um, that's where I share a lot of stories is on Twitter. So doc capital DLC underscore elite. If you follow me on Twitter, um, you can uh, just learn a lot about what I do with teams. And I share a lot of articles and just my thoughts on, on life and mental health and performance and how to just be a better human being. It's, it's hard to be that this day and age for a variety of reasons. So yeah, to be kind, true. to be kind today is a, is just kind of a neat thing to do. If we could focus on just being kind to one another, it goes a long way in this world right now. It's so. a superpower <laughs> right now. I, it, I, it, really, it really is, <laughs> but it's a choice and it's hard. And so, yeah, when all, especially when life is hitting you back quite a ways, can you still mm-hmm. be kind and still pay yeah. attention to others and just ask people how they're doing? Because mm-hmm. as I mentioned, there's so much psychological distress right now. And I can't say when that's going to go away because we have a lot of things going on in this country right now that, complicate things and that's probably always true of every generation but right now it seems to be a little bit more than maybe it has been the last few years and so let's just be kind to one another and reach out and help each other out and we don't have to agree on everything we don't have to have the exact same view on a policy or a politic or how we think about things to still be friends with people and still Mm -hmm. connect with them um you know, we don't have to have the exact same mindset on everything to say you're right and I'm wrong and vice versa. And, you know, since I'm right, you're wrong. I can't discuss it with you. And I wish there was more dialogue like that in the world today where, all right, I don't agree with that with you, but I do find some common ground there with you. So and I still think I still think you're a neat person. So let's let's still be friends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, we need a lot more of that. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. So I will put links in the show notes for all all of your social media accounts and the website and then how to reach, how to get the book. And I just, you know, to all our listeners, I really encourage you to take a look at this, uh, this book, Max Out Mindset. Um, I think you're, you're seeing, if you've listened to this episode, you're this far in it, you're going to see that, uh, you know, Larry's got a deep, deep well that he's, he's come from and all this experience. Uh, he's talking about all these great stories how you can lead an organization to the next level and uh and it's a mindset and and I think that uh Larry I really appreciate you being on the show. I I really gained a lot and I look forward to uh getting the book and going through it. But um I really appreciate your time and this has just been uh really, really powerful. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me and thanks again for spending the time with me to talk to me about, you know, 
how do you get an editor and how do you make a cover page <laughs> of your book and you know who resources for somebody like me who had never written a book and and uh, uh just taking the time to talk to a stranger about what worked for you and uh, it made a huge difference for me and so i i thank you for that well i'm glad i could help in a little way so i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing this book awesome All right. Well, uh, that is it for today. So thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care.